0: You know, what do you do when you have a great meal? What do you do when you take a great trip or you have this great time with family? And before you post it to social media, what do you do? All right. And just as a side note, why do we do that? Why? uh, And this is not just a rhetorical question. I'm going to give you an answer. We do that because we are meant to share things. Like, we're not created to keep things to ourselves. We have a good time. We eat something good. We have a, we have a good interaction, and we want people to know about it. That's, uh, and that's what social media is kind of made for. Also, It's also made for trolls. But, um, but this is how we are, we are designed to share. And so before we will take that picture, in our mind, we want to bring people into what we enjoy. We want to share what is most dear to us. For some of us, that's food. For some of us, it's trips or family vacations and stuff like that. But from the very beginning, when God created all things, he created all things good. The one thing that was not good is that man was alone. And so we are meant to be in connection with one another. And as introverted as you may be, no one can exist by themselves at all times. And so that idea of wanting to share something it's just ingrained within us that's how we're designed to have people with us and in the same regard the gospel is meant to be shared when you have something good just as i will recommend a good restaurant or or a good movie i will recommend something that is greater than both of those the gospel the good news is meant to be shared it's not meant to be kept to ourselves and it is too good to keep to ourselves And so whether it's on a large scale or on a small scale, that is something that as Christians we're meant to share and bring other people into. And so building off of last week when we saw that the gospel word gospel means good news. And it came from a military background. So what would happen in these wars is when there would be a victory on on the battlefield, there would be a messenger, a herald who was sent out, Once the victory was accomplished, he was the fastest runner. He would get ahead of everyone else and make his way back and tell everyone what happened. We were victorious. We won. I've got good news. Our enemies are defeated. This is where we get this word gospel from. We have good news. Our enemies are defeated. But similar to the message, there's a messenger. The herald he's the one who takes the message. He's the one who has a great responsibility to tell all the details and sometimes embellish them, build them up a little bit, but to tell all the details of what happened on the battlefield. And so the herald would be sent from the front lines, but the herald also had a dual purpose. The herald was the spokesman for the king. The herald in those days and and in most cultures uh, throughout antiquity and even going on in the Middle Ages, before a king would even walk into the, the central square, A herald would say, make way for the king. The king is coming. And everyone would either back up or they would kneel. And so the herald's job was to make sure that people knew the king was coming. Herald or messenger was a very important official title. And so now we come to where we are in Mark's gospel account. Because John is that gospel herald. John is that gospel messenger. John is the one saying, prepare the way for the king. Yeah, I'm here and I'm talking really loud, but don't pay attention to me because someone greater is coming right behind me. Be ready. He's on his way. And in fact, every preacher of the gospel stands in that tradition. A herald of someone greater than ourselves. Behold, a king is coming. A king is here. Here's who our king is. Here's what he's done. And he is amazing. And so the word for preaching, for proclamation, comes from the same root. It is heralding. We'll get into that more in a minute. But who is this herald? Who is this messenger? This is is John, son of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's cousin of Jesus. He was foretold, as we read earlier in Luke 1, as the prophet of the Most High. And he is the only other person in Mark's gospel account that gets his own section. Every other section in the book is about Jesus. Jesus is the main character. This is the only time. And he's the only person in this account is one of the, one of the few that's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John the Baptist is that important. The only one who can eat in the gospel narratives can even come close. And we'll get to why that is in a moment. And But his prophetic ministry, that of speaking on behalf of the Lord, is marked by baptisms. And we'll get to that as well. Ritual cleansings that would happen in the Jordan River. Hence, John the Baptist. And we get John Mark, not to be fused, confused with John the Baptist, not to be confused with John the writer, writer of the other gospel. John Mark, his account here, doesn't give as many details as Matthew and Luke does, and we're going to pull in some of those a little bit. But John gets right to the meat of it, gets right into it, and wants you to know what is most important. And John is concerned with, or excuse me, John Mark is concerned with motion. He's keeping this moving. So we're jumping right into the heart of Jesus' ministry and the one who prepares the way for that ministry. So we're going to jump right into Mark chapter 1. Last week we covered Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This week we'll do a few more verses. So pick up in Mark chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, open it up please. If not, there is one in front of you. Mark chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, maker of heaven and earth, how incredible it is that you would speak to us in your word more incredible that this is all of your plan throughout history unchanged that your promises would be fulfilled and even more incredible than that that you would take on flesh and fulfill these promises yourself so that there may be forgiveness of sins so that there may be a baptism of the holy spirit so that there may be new life in you forever you are amazing This gospel is amazing. Let us be faithful heralds, proclaimers, and defenders of the message of our King. Because He is worthy. Lord, pray that you would increase as we decrease so that you are glorified. And in that, you will build up and you will exalt your people. Because you are exalted first. In Jesus' name we pray amen amen so we're going to begin in verse one Uh, excuse me verse two verse one we looked at last week in depth we looked at every word and we saw how verse one was important this is the beginning of the gospel story the gospel story proper john the gospel messenger in this gospel this good news of jesus christ the man jesus was born of mary The Christ, meaning the anointed one of God, the one who is put here for a specific purpose, who fulfills all the promises in the Old Testament, but also the Son of God, fully human, fully divine, the true Son of God, co-equal with God. And so to prove his point, Mark starts with as, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written. This gospel is not something new. It's not something that just appears and has no foundation in history. And so whenever someone in the ancient world sees the the, the form, it is written. So it doesn't hold as much weight to us unless we're familiar with the Bible. But in those days, when someone says it is written, they, uh, they are appealing to authoritative statements. Typically kings. If you read through the Old Testament, when a king would make an edict, and then someone would act against it. Well, it is written. You have written. And so there is an authoritative structure looking back to older established texts. So, one of our first lessons this morning. So, one of the things we're going to see in this text is that learning about John the Baptist has a lot to teach us about John's ministry, about Jesus' ministry, and the significance of it. But there are many lessons as well for our day. And one of the first of those is that Scripture is God's authority as it is written. These prophecies that we're going to look at are 700 years before Jesus. They are authoritative, they are inspired, and this is God's plan all along. Jesus did not show up as, as a Plan B because God's initial plan went wrong. This is God's Plan A, and He's gonna and Jesus fulfills all of these promises in Scripture, and we're going to look at many of them this morning. So let's dive right in because these are passages that the Jews were. Familiar with. They would have been expecting this. And so, he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So technically, this is from Malachi and Isaiah. But because, remember as last week, Mark is writing to a Gentile audience, and Isaiah is the most famous of the, the writing prophets, most people are going to be familiar with Isaiah, and the context of Isaiah 40, which we'll get to in a second, is what, is what John Mark wants people to look toward. But the bulk of this particular quote is from Malachi chapter 3. And so behold, if you, it'll be up on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Malachi chapter 3. Or Malachi is the last Old Testament book in our English Bible. So go to Matthew and then one right before that. So the issue at hand in Malachi is in a lot of the prophets is that Israel's broken covenant and they're seeing the the uh, repercussions of that but God promises a messenger before the day of the Lord. Now there's a lot of parallels here that we're going to draw on in Malachi chapter 3. So I'm going to read it slowly. Pay attention to the details cuz I will refer back to them throughout the sermon. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. It's very important here. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is very official, authoritative language here. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and he will purify, excuse me, and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Israel has a problem. They are not pleasing to the Lord. There is no righteousness. There is no good standing in them. And there's going to be a messenger who comes who prepares the way for the Lord himself. And what will mark the Lord's coming is this refinement. We'll get into that more later. But if you're not familiar with the process, refinement is taking something that has value to it, like gold or silver, and removing the impurities. You turn up the heat, which removes the impurities. It refines it. It purifies it. Again, we'll spend more time on that later. So that's where we get the very beginning of this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he prepares the way before me. But the greater context is in Isaiah chapter 40, which will also be on the screen. But I encourage you to turn to because I want you to get the context of Isaiah. So Isaiah, the the great writer, many have called it the gospel of the Old Testament. A lot of history, a lot of foreshadowing, a lot of good news. The first half of the book is not a lot of good news. The second half of the book, and when I I mean half, it's just an easy way to divide it at chapter 40. The second half of the the book, starting in, in chapter 40, verse 1, sets the tone for the entire second half. It's comfort. Because there's a lot of proclamation against Israel in the first half of the book and all the nations surrounding. There's not a lot of good going on in the world, but there's a message of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then we pick up in verse 3, where we get here in Mark and in the other Gospels. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in a desert a highway for our God every valley shall be lifted up. Meaning you don't have to go down. These, these are really straight paths. And if most of you, if you're from Florida, you don't know what it's like to climb up and to climb down. It's tiring. A straight path is when you don't have to walk down a mountain face into a valley and you can walk straight. You don't have to walk up a mountain. You can walk straight. This makes your journey a lot easier. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low and uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places made plain. It's what it means to prepare a trail. Also get into more of that later. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. A straight way is made. The glory of God will be revealed in all flesh, meaning all peoples will see it. It will be visible for them, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this goes on and on and on, and Uh, the the crying of the gospel messenger. But look at the language further on in in verse 9, if you have your Bibles open. There is good news. Go up on the high mountain Zion, which is where the temple is in Jerusalem. Herald of the good news. We talked about heralding earlier. We're going to get to the herald this morning. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. What is the good news? Behold your God. You are going to see God. That is the good news. That is you shout from the mountaintops. And that God, as we go on, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. Sound familiar? He will carry them in His bosom and He will lead them gently as with young. And this message of a messenger, this good news, this is what we're witnessing now. What Isaiah prophesied 700 years before, Mark now lays out for us. So if you have your Bibles and you know the context, this is where it comes from. This is what Mark is quoting, both Malachi and Isaiah. We're going to pick back up in Mark and let's look at the content of these promises. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger. First thing we must see here, my messenger. Who's sending The Lord, the king, is sending a messenger, my messenger. He is the last Old Testament prophet. He is the last one to prophesy and proclaim before the new covenant of God is enacted. He is also the first gospel messenger, meaning the first one with the the, the content of the gospel. We've seen, like we talked about last week, we've seen shadows of it. We've seen seeds of it up to this point. But he's the, the first gospel messenger. He is sent from the Lord. Before your face. Now who's the your here? Before your face, who will prepare your way. Which way is that? Prepare the way of the Lord. So we've got the Lord sending a messenger to prepare the way for the Lord. Yahweh says to Adonai. The Lord says to my Lord. God the Father preparing the way for God the Son. This is amazing revelation here. Think about God in eternity past, putting this this plan together and preparing the way for God in the flesh. So the next thing we need to talk about here is way or paths. Who will prepare your way? Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. We got in this a little bit when we looked at Isaiah. But if you're in a culture where you walk a lot, how direct your path is, it means a lot. It doesn't mean as much to us, because if it's difficult, we just drive around. But if you've ever been hiking, and anything other than level ground, hiking anywhere else but Florida, you know it is not easy, and you look for the path of least resistance, unless you just really want to challenge yourself. But you try to find where the straightest path is. You try to find the way, because how vigorous your path is will determine how well you will move through the area. And so when we talk about paths, so when we talk about way, it's, a, it's, it's speaking about how you go about things, and not just in a hike, but throughout life. How he walks, the way that he, he, he walks. And this is symbolic throughout Scripture. Psalm 1 talks about the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. But there is a difference between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And John in fourteen six tells us he is the way, the truth is. And the life. The only way, the only truth, the only life. And so there's a particular way. So much so that in the early church, that was the code name for the church. Because if they were vocal about who they were, they would be killed. Are you of the way? We are the way. This is how the early church would, would describe themselves. And this is a term that Mark uses a lot. Mark is a gospel of movement. So we're going to see Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. When the disciples were on their way, this phrase comes up a lot. And this way is moving through the ministry of Jesus and find its culmination at the cross. This way goes to the cross and because that is why he came, not just to be a good teacher, not to just heal and perform miracles, but to die, to redeem a people for himself. That way is unavoidable to the cross. And that way is also our way. If you remember in Luke 1, uh, we're going to go in the Gospels quite a bit back and forth. If you go to Luke 1 again, what we read earlier, how is that way attributed to John? So if you look at the prophecy in Luke 1, verse 76, "...and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways." So John's ministry is twofold, to prepare the way for the Lord. And what does that preparation look like? We'll get into that in a moment too. To give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John's ministry is preparing the way for the Lord, but also preparing our way. He is ushering in the King who will make a peaceful way for us. So John kind of had this bridge ministry between the Old Testament promise and New Testament fulfillment. But this way must begin with his ministry. The proclamation and understanding of sin and repentance. And it began in a weird place. It begins in the wilderness. He is the voice, this messenger's voice is crying out in the wilderness. The wilderness, it'll be, I got a map up on the screen so you can kind of get this idea. So, you can see in the middle of your screen where it says the wilderness of Judea in Jerusalem. So Galilee, that's where Jesus' the main ministry area is up there. He would travel down to Jerusalem. The entire region is Judea. Uh, and this darker area in the middle, that is the uh, Jordan River. And so the wilderness being outside of the city, away from the people, and this is where John would would minister. And so there's a literal wilderness where he is. On the other side of those mountains is just desert. So he's on the edge of the desert, in the wilderness, away from the safety of civilization. That's where he's ministering. But there's also a spiritual wilderness. Because this is analogous to, to God's people being in a dry land, being in a lifeless place. And he often calls his people out of the wilderness and more often brings them through the wilderness. And this John is to prepare the way. He begins in the wilderness outside of the city and he prepares the way of the Lord, makes his path straight. We talked about that earlier about bringing the high places down and the low places up so there's a straight way for him to walk he is preparing the way for who the lord and who do we find out is the lord it's jesus and yes we read over this and many of you if you've read the bible you know this but think about this for a moment john is coming to prepare the way for god in the flesh God himself, the prophecy reveals Emmanuel, God made flesh. Prepare the way for the Lord in this ministry of preparation. He's not literally bringing mountains down and literally bringing valleys up, but what you do when you prepare a path is you remove obstacles. So you remove obstacles so that when the king comes, or the one who you are preceding comes, he has a straight way. And all the obstacles will be removed So those who don't come and those who don't follow the way will be under uh, their, their own, it's the word I'm looking for here, their, their, their own responsibility. So what is this ministry of preparation? What is John doing? He's getting Israel ready. He's bringing their sins to their attention, the knowledge of sin and the knowledge of salvation that we saw in Luke 1. That they may confess their sins and be ready for the coming Savior. And so what does this preparation look like? And what we're going to see also in Malachi, sorry, I should have told you you have your finger there, but in the end of Malachi, the last verses of the Old Testament, what what is the promise? The last verse is that someone will come before the Lord, and someone specific. Behold, I will send you, this is Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers, hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah, remember, Elijah does not die. He's taken up into heaven. Elijah will come back again. The most powerful prophet as far as deeds in the Old Testament. And there is... A promise that he will come again. And this is referenced directly in the birth of John the Baptist. So if you're in Mark, Luke chapter 1. Next book over to the right. I know we're jumping around a lot, but this is important. I want you to see how this, this, this connects. And to put it in perspective, Malachi is 400 years before Jesus. But look at what the angel tells his father. The angel tells John the Baptist's father, this is Luke chapter 1 verse 13. Sound familiar? And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Sound familiar? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. All of this fulfilled in John. This is why these, this account is In all four Gospels, all of these promises, the hearts of the children turn toward the Father, a preparation for the Lord, a preparation of the people. John the Baptist fulfills this, and it was essential that Elijah must come. And this great fulfillment connecting John to the mightiest prophet in the Old Testament and connecting Jesus to Almighty God, all Scripture finding its culmination of the good news in the awesome day of the Lord. Because the awesome day, it means salvation and peace, but it also means destruction. We'll get to that in a moment as well. This prophetic anticipation that has been building for hundreds of years within Israel is now here. Jesus came to fulfill the law. The books of Moses, the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, Daniel through Malachi, and the Psalms. The writings of and, and uh, poetic books of the New Testament. All these are find their fulfillment in Christ. So we've got the uh, messenger. This is what he's doing. This is his role, his role of preparation. Now we're going to get into the ministry itself. What is John doing? What marks John's ministry? Verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now we've got to clarify a couple things in John's ministry. I think this will be helpful what it exactly is going on here? Because we have modern conceptions of what preaching is, we have modern conceptions of what baptizing is, we have modern conceptions of what repentance is. Let's root them in biblical truths and what they meant to the original readers. So the first thing he is proclaiming, essentially preaching, he is heralding. And he is cry, this word means to cry out loud, to declare, to announce. A herald was not on his own. A herald always worked for someone else. A herald represented the king. He is crying out, proclaiming, announcing the word of the king. John the Baptist is the herald of the king. Matthew tells us his message was repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. What does repentance mean? Now, many of you should understand what repentance means. Um, a turning a change of mind but it wasn't just a temporary thing it wasn't just a a one-time thing it was a change of understanding a change of action a change of everything you are because Jesus tells us that the fruit that true repentance bears fruit it's not just outward verbal lip service it's not just moralistic action it is a true change that bears it's a real change of sinful behavior and turning toward forgiveness john is telling israel the same way that the other prophets did turn turn from your sin turn from death turn to the one who gives life turn to the king who comes after me turn because in him there is life and there is peace but in him there is destruction if you do not turn turn in trust repent and believe because you need to be forgiven This is not the soft and gentle ministry of Jesus that we hear today. This is not Jesus loves you just the way you are. Jesus loves you in your sin so much he wants you to continue just the way you are in your sin. No, this is repent and believe. This is turn because sin is death. The awesome day of the Lord means peace and restoration for those who turn destruction for those who don't more on that in just a moment clarification as well is what is john's baptism so you understand john's background a little bit john comes from a priestly line and so john is a mediatorial representative here what does that mean means he baptizes others before this no one was doing that let me explain So the idea of ritual cleansing existed in many cultures and was prominent within within Jewish cultures, um, especially for the priests. They would cleanse and they would would wash themselves. This grew within the intertestamental period when the rabbis rose to power. Jesus kind of criticizes them that you'll wash your couch and you'll wash your, your clothing, but you won't examine your own hearts. And why are these washings necessary? Because the people are separated from God because of sin and uncleanliness. A perfect and holy God who is without spot or blemish will not allow any blemish to come before him. So before a priest could do their duties, they must wash from head to toe, and they must wash themselves. But John is doing something different here. He is washing others. He is acting as a priest, bringing others into right relationship with God. He, is, he has a ministry of purification. And this, it, this includes confession, and this would also be done for conversion. If someone came from the outside, and you came from another culture, you would need to be washed and cleansed before you could participate in any of Israel's worship. And this, as this process grew and became more widespread, John came to clarify it. So the word baptizo, the, the, the word for baptism, does not exist in the Old Testament. This is actually incorporated, just like the word gospel, because it had a lot of connotations at the time. So that, the, the word baptizo, it's, it's a naval word. So it literally means to sink a ship. It's essentially where, where it comes from. So it means to, to sink, to drown, to immerse. When a, when a ship would be destroyed in a battle on the water, they, baptizo, they were. Or whatever, the, um, whatever the, the, the declension is at the time. But, so it, it, would, it, would, it would fall under the water. It's been so long since I'm taking Greek, sorry. Um, and, but there's, there's an, an immersive nature to the word. It also has a nature of drowning and death. There is a complete immersion. There's a complete death that is going on. And this would, this would speak volumes to a Greek-speaking audience. They know what it means to go under the water. They know what it means to be completely covered by something. And so what John is doing is saying, in order to be right with God, you must be immersed in Him. You must confess, leave your sins behind, and and be completely covered because you need to be forgiven. This is what was going on here. But we have to be clear that the water does not forgive. The water has no mystical power in and of itself. The water does not heal or save. But it is a public proclamation that if I turn from my sins and I turn to the Lord, I will be covered in His cleansing water. He will cleanse me, and my sins will be forgiven. But this still falls short, because there is still a price that needs to be paid. This baptism of John is good, but it is not enough. It is a symbol that is not complete. More on that in a moment. If it was complete, there wouldn't need to be another one to come. Verse 5, what else do we see about his ministry? In all the country of Judea, as we saw on the map, the, the southern region and all of Jerusalem, all the people concentrated in the city were going out to him and being baptized, bore him. So, what, what do we see about John's ministry? All the people. John was a popular guy, John was very popular. Everyone knew John. So much so that. Uh, the, the Jewish historians wrote a lot more about John than they did, did about Jesus. Uh, jo, Josephus, the most, the most um, famous Jewish historian, wrote a lot about John the Baptist, because John the Baptist, he had this ethical ministry. that were, they, it was, He was seeking Israel to be pure before their God. and all the Jews loved that message, but the ones who hated it were the righteous, self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees. He was very popular. You remember in Luke 20 where Jesus asked the Pharisees, was John's baptism, was it from heaven or from earth? And they were so terrified of the answer because if they say that it was from earth, the people were convinced that John was a prophet and they would revolt against him. But if they say it's from heaven, that means we're wrong because they refused to be baptized by him. So they were caught and they said, we don't know. So Jesus' response is that, well, then I won't tell you where my authority comes from because you can't answer John. If you don't understand John, if you don't understand that John was sent by the Lord as a prophet to to usher me in, then you don't believe and I'm not going to dignify you with a response. John was so popular that his disciples didn't want to leave to follow Jesus. John had to tell them, it's okay, leave, he's better than me. He's greater than I. That is how beloved John was. And it all the people went out to him. And this is, this is symbolic too because the city is where the comfort is. It's where our rhythm of, of, of life is. We want to be around other people. We want to be around what's familiar with us. You go into the wilderness, you're a little exposed. You're a little left open to the elements and you're drawn out of your, your comfort. So the people have to go from the comfort of the city to the unknown nature of the wilderness to face their sins face to face. And they did. All of Judea and all the countryside And what were they doing? They were confessing their sins. Repentance requires a recognition, I am a sinner. And confession, I have sinned before God. The word confession means to speak in agreement. I am agreeing that I am a sinner. There's an important lesson for us in this. Because all of Judea and all of Jerusalem went out. Crowds do not mean conversions. Because we know in a couple years, most of these people were shouting crucify him. And in our day, crowds do not typically mean conversions. Many of those who have the largest ministries are tickling ears. And they're telling people what they, they, they want to hear. And even if it sounds very persuasive, without confession And without repentance and without forgiveness, it is all for naught. Not. And sadly, many of the biggest ministries today do not include the language of repentance and confession and restoration. On the other side, judgment. So we have to be careful. Just because there are a lot of people gathering doesn't always mean that something is actually happening. Sometimes it's just the movement of the ants. It's just busy. But true ministry must include confession and repentance and restoration. So, what else do we learn about this ministry? It was not an ordinary ministry. It's not an ordinary message, and it's not an ordinary person. Verse six. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Just so you know, that is as weird then as it is now. If that if that sounds weird, this guy wearing camel's hair uh, and the leather belt is not as luxurious as you think it is. So this is not common attire. Uh, camels did not have smooth wool. Uh, there, there's a lot of refinement that had to go on. By the way, you can actually get like luxury camel uh, coats now for a couple grand, and they go, they go through a lot of, of, of process uh, to get them there. That's besides the point. So in eating locusts and wild honey, although this is within Jewish dietary restrictions, um, you would need a lot of honey to wash some locusts down. Uh, but this is what John ate. John is not meant to be this luxurious figure. Just like Jesus didn't come in his own splendor, John doesn't come in his. And then here's another good lesson for us. Sadly, too many gospel ministers are concerned with dressing cool or dressing holy and eating the finest foods and going to the finest restaurants and driving the nicest cars. But this guy, who dresses weird, who eats weird, who speaks weird, what did Jesus have to say about him? And this one is important. Look at Luke chapter 7. Again, next book over to your right. You're going to be very familiar with where Luke is. Luke chapter 7. When the Pharisees confront Jesus and they're or excuse me, uh, this is when Jesus is talking to John the Baptist's uh, disciples, and they come and ask Jesus who he is. Look what Jesus says about John the Baptist So, I'm in uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, Those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Let's stop there for a moment. All the things that our culture says makes you great. Your suit, or your $500 $500 designer sneakers, or whatever else uh, pastors who want to look the part now play. Jesus says no one who has ever been born of woman in the traditional sense is greater than John. So it has nothing to do with your externals. Nothing to do with what you eat, what you wear. It is, it, this is a man who spent his entire life saying, I must decrease that he must increase. John is the greatest man ever. Walk on the earth not named Jesus. But look at the next line. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John is great, but his message is so much greater. Because if you are in Christ, if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, you are greater than the greatest person who has ever worked on this planet. Even if you are least in the kingdom, even if you sit at the kiddie table in the king's feast, you are greater than John the Baptist who is greatest in Jesus' eyes. Think about that. That is the power of the gospel. That is what God offers to those who repent and believe. Greatest in a kingdom that will not pass away. Living with God for eternity in his house. Greater than anything this world has ever seen. Because you are glorified and perfected and united with your God. And as we see John's message, it's not about himself. His message was always Focused on the content. Verse 7, now we get into the Messiah. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. John's preaching focus is not the message or even the hearers, but a person. The Messiah, the the anointed one of God is mightier and greater, greater. After me comes one who is mightier than I. Next lesson. Preaching. If you truly understand who the Messiah is, you must be humble. There can be no other kind of preacher. There can be no other kind of of, of Christian. If you truly know the Messiah, there is no room for arrogance. There is no room for self-righteousness. He is greater than I am. John understands. And to emphasize the point, he uses this example. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. They thought as highly of feet, even less highly of feet than we do now. Your feet symbolizes your dust being between your toes, walking on an unclean, cursed earth. And so if you were prominent, you would not dare touch your own feet, let alone untie your own sandals. And even in most rich households, they wouldn't even let Jewish servants untie sandals. It was typically left for Gentiles. So John is saying, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Meaning, I am lower than a Gentile servant. I'm not fit to be his slave. That is how great he is. I'm not fit to clean the dirt between his toes. Do not look to me. Do not worship me. This is John's message. How could you ever be arrogant if you know that you're not even worthy to clean his toes and untie his shoes? That is how great he is. And John understood his place. And now the climax of the whole passage. I have baptized you with water. John's baptism is important and it changes things. But if John's baptism was perfect, there would not need to be another to come. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this distinction between John and Jesus' baptism must be started with he will. Why is that important? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You must understand this. Only God can bestow the Spirit of God. This is a declaration in itself. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. God does not take orders from anyone but God. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will send His Spirit upon you and immerse you in His Spirit, cover you with His Spirit. This is better than anything I can do with water. So this is the distinction between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. The human versus the spiritual. The symbolic versus the substance of the symbol. He who is to come and he who has come. Admitting your sin and being atoned for sin. So when you think about a baptism, and before we get into the distinction there, what are you immersed in? Are you covered with something human? Do you think that you can just wash yourself off with your own good deeds? Do you think that you can just cover yourself with some water, look yourself in the mirror, kind of change direction a little bit, and think that you are are cleansed? Or are you completely covered, immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit? And what is at stake here? I think this is important. Matthew draws on this, Matthew chapter 3. Because the same quote is expounded a little bit again. John, or excuse me, John Mark, his focus is brevity, but Matthew gets into the details that the, the Jews would understand. This is Matthew chapter three, verse eleven. Same quote, but he expands on it. I baptize you with water for repentance. John is making the distinction here. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire that refinement we talked about earlier. His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will clear His threshing floor, and He will gather up wheat into His barn, but the chaff will burn away with unquenchable fire. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What happens when, when fire is put to you in the refinement? If you are gold, you will be purified. If you are dross, you will burn up. The winnowers' fork, when they would split the, 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 the heads of the wheat, they would throw it in the air, and the stuff with substance, the stuff with weight, would fall down, and the chaff would blow away in the wind. This is a separation. Jesus' baptism is a separation. The Holy Spirit will cleanse. This is also fulfilled on the screen. Um, before the screen, it was in Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13, one of the promises of the day of the Lord, again, is this refinement. The sword is raised above the, uh, to the shepherd in verse 7. Verse 8, And the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. The ones that are left alive... I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. This is also in Malachi 3, this refinement process. Why is this necessary? Because God is holy, God is pure and he wants a pure people for himself. And he is willing to turn the heat up because he loves you. And he's also willing to turn the heat up because your sins offend him. So what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I want to do this quickly because you hear this a lot. And I want you to have an answer for this. And it's important for us to say what it is and what it is not. So, very quickly, Acts chapter 19. So, Paul builds on this and distinguishes John's baptism from Jesus' baptism. In Acts chapter 19, this is the event that um, if you are from a more charismatic culture, this is where this, this comes from. That uh, There's the idea that you must speak in tongues to prove that you are saved. You must speak in tongues and to prove that you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. This is where it comes from, Acts chapter 19. It does have a, a biblical basis. But I want to deal with it on its face value. Zach so chapter 19 verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?" And they said, "No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit." And he said, "Into what then were you baptized?" And they said, "Into well, John's baptism." And Paul said, "John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. That's why John's baptism is incomplete. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about 12 men at all. So this is a sign that happened at that time to confirm, anytime you see tongues spoken in the book of Acts, it is always to confirm uh, something new that is, that is happening. It comes down on Pentecost. The gospel goes to the, the, the Gentiles. The baptism of John is not enough. There must be a baptism into Jesus, into the Holy Spirit. And so if you think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is only tongues, that means you stop reading in Acts. Because any other time Paul speaks about baptism is always associated with salvation. So if you're going to listen to Paul here, Speaking to a specific situation, listen to the rest of his writings. And I'm going to go through these quickly so we, can, so we can close. But I want you to see the argument laid out here. Romans 6. These will be up on the screen if you can follow with me. Great. Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's that death-immersive picture here of the symbol of baptism. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, why do we need to be baptized in Christ? Just as Christ was raised raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's that path of peace that must go through baptism. Also, 1 Corinthians 6. How is that baptism accomplished? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, speaking of the immoral, sexually adulterous, everything, the, the thieves and the greedy and the drunkards, everything that comes before it, you were like them, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is the baptism of the, of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, justification, you have been saved. Sanctification, you are being saved. Chapter 12, same thing, but a little bit more. Chapter 12 of First Corinthians, verse 12. For just as the body is one and as many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit you were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. There's a unity that happens in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God connects God to His people and the people to each other. Last text and we're going to close here. Titus chapter 3. This is the gospel explained. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is why we need to repent. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. How? How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit means regeneration. It means to be born again. It means new life. Not so that you can put on a spectacle. What is the significance of this new life? Whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So through Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so that we, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Not just that you'll speak in tongues, that you'll have the riches of Christ forever. That you'll be justified, you'll stand before Him righteous. All the sins that needed to be cleansed of and atoned for are now covered. And the Holy Spirit is the seal of that. And now we have hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The baptism of the Holy Spirit means that everything that Israel needed to repent of and turn from is completed in Christ and sealed with His Spirit so that His people may be devoted to good things. And so guys, I want to give you a challenge for this evening. We're going to be doing our men's study again in Disciplines of a Godly Man, and we're dealing with devotion tonight. And this chapter has been so good because I look around the room, I've had this conversation with so many of you. How can I get excited about reading my Bible? How can I not just be bored when I'm reading? How do I turn what I think into joy in my heart? I want to and we're going to deal with devotion tonight. So that is a plug, but a challenge at the same time. So we've learned many lessons in this, and I just want to recap them and then we'll, we'll, we'll close. John the Baptist fulfills the promises of God. His good news is our good news. And the gospel he preaches is always Christ exalting, man diminishing. And this gospel leads to repentance and confession and forgiveness and humility. And water baptism, if you're consumed with the mode or the the type of water, you're missing the point. The baptism of the Spirit through faith that leads to regeneration and justification. And right standing with God is the point. Because it puts us in right standing with the King that John the Baptist came to proclaim. And citizens of his kingdom forever let's pray